um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 can be found on page 1851 of your Black Bibles. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must gently be instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Thanks, Ellie, and good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Hunley. It's Lovely to be here with you today. Uh, when you made your way in, I hope you managed to grab a, a leaflet. Uh, the leaflet has 
an outline of what I'll be talking about today. It has uh, prayer points and that sort of stuff in it as well. Today's message, in a sense, is a little bit about not being distracted. Um, normally, I try to give you a good example of that. You might like to see a bad example. My last prayer point isn't quite finished in the leaflet. I managed to get somehow distracted in that this week. Um, but please, uh, if you use those prayer points, I'm sure you'll be able to work out what I meant uh, as I was saying that. I wonder if the name Rosie Ruse means anything to you. Rosie Ruse, have you heard of her before? I've got a photo of Rosie on the screen behind me. On the 21st of April, 1980, Rosie Ruse was crowned the female winner of the Boston Marathon. And she looks surprisingly well-rested for someone who has just smashed the previous Boston world record by more than three minutes. Her marathon time was impressive. In fact, it was the third fastest marathon ever run by a female athlete. When Jackie Garou, who was the Canadian runner in the race, who had been leading for the majority of the race, crossed the finish line and looked up, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. There was another woman standing on the finish line wearing the laurel leaf crown of the victor of the race. Who is Rosie Ruse? Where did she come from? And how had she run so fast? Didn't take long for doubts about this achievement to start to bubble up to the surface. How could Rosie look so fresh? She barely had even worked up a sweat. Her face only looks just slightly flushed. I've never run a marathon, but at the moment I'm trying to get up in the morning three times a week pull myself out of bed and go to the gym to run five kilometres on the treadmill. All five kilometres hurts for me. A kilometre in, I'm a sweaty mess. Rosie had run 42 kilometres and she looked as fresh as a daisy. The question was, had she? See, slowly the whispers and the rumblings about Rosie's race became a shout and the organisation in charge of the Boston Marathon decided they needed to investigate. There were thousands of photos of the event and some video image that was taken for the news. Yes, even back in 1980 they did that. And so the race organisers scoured through every single photo they could get their hands on. Rosie Ruse was not in a single image of the race. And spectators eventually came forward when the the, the whispers became a, a loud shout and said they'd seen Rosie join the race just a mile from the finish line. The Boston Marathon's not open to anybody. To get in, you've got to qualify in another race. Rosie had qualified 23rd place in the New York Marathon earlier that year. And as the rumours started to spread about this, people came forward who were travelling on the subway at the time when the New York Marathon was run. They said, we saw her on the subway. All the evidence pointed towards Rosie being a cheat. It's alleged that she started the race and then jumped on the subway and caught it towards the finish line and just ran the last mile under her own steam. She was subsequently stripped of her crown, both in the Boston and the New York Marathon, because she hadn't competed according to the rules. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul tells us that everyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except if they compete according to the rules. I think it's a metaphor that we understand really well as Australians. 
Rosie, if you don't compete according to the rules of the marathon, if you jump on a subway, you don't deserve to win the victor's crown. In Australia, we pride ourselves on our sportsmanship, don't we? Sports cheats are dealt with severely. The Bombers know this. Steve Smith and David Warner know this. Greg and Trevor Chappell know this. But it's not just an Australian phenomenon, is it? Lance Armstrong knows too well what it means to be a cheat. In the world of sports, we want our athletes to compete according to the rules. But here's the reality for each one of us. It's part of our fallen human nature to take shortcuts, to look for an easy way out, It's frowned, isn't it, in the world of sports to do that. Paul wants us to see, likewise, that in the process of entrusting the message of the gospel, don't look for an easy way out. Here's the big idea, I think, of what Paul is trying to say to us in the second chapter of 2 Timothy. Timothy, pass on the good news of the gospel, even if doing so is costly. Hold firm to the gospel, even if it feels like you're stepping out into a battle. Because passing on the gospel, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be costly. And when the stakes are high and you're hurting, don't cheat. Don't take shortcuts or look for the easy way out, but instead stay the course. You might be wondering today, how do we go about doing that? And Paul gives us the answer to that as well. He reminds us of what it's all about. He reminds us of the importance and the core of the gospel. He says, remember Jesus raised from the dead, descended from David. Again this week, I've just been marvelling at this passage and how relevant it is for us today. See, I need this encouragement from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and I think we as a church also need this encouragement because passing on the gospel... Our core mission is hard work. So hard work, I think, that the temptation exists for us to just give up on doing it. Or leave it to others. Perhaps we'll leave it to the mega churches or to the ones who have two or three pastors or to the ones that don't have to set up and pack up each week. The other churches who could pass on the gospel. It's hard work passing on the gospel. And we might be tempted, I think, to water down the gospel or to cheat. But here in this chapter, we're reminded again of the truth. It's worth holding on to. It's worth passing on the message of the gospel because it's the message of life. It's the message of resurrection. It's the message of immortality. We're going to see that this week as we just work our way through the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 2. It'll be well familiar to us, I think, by the end of our time together this morning. Last week, we took a little bit of a look at the context of this letter. Remember, Paul is in prison. He's in chains. We see that in our passage today. And we know that his life is coming to its end. And Paul writes probably what is his last letter. Certainly, it's the last letter that we have from Paul to Timothy. It's a letter of encouragement and advice. It's also a letter of great compassion and familiarity and it shows us the sort of relationship that Paul has with Timothy. Timothy is addressed as Paul's son and so I want you to remember as well that this is a letter with a real and distinct purpose. See Paul wants Timothy 
to hold on to the truth of the gospel and pass it on to others who in turn will pass it on to yet more people. And as I read this letter, I kind of feel like there's two fronts that are attacking Timothy as Paul writes this letter. Firstly, there's the attack from those who are not part of the church. It seems like from the government or from those who rule or from those who see Christianity as a way to scapegoat what's happening in the world. They see Christianity as a religion that needs to be quashed. That's the first attack that seems to be happening. And the second attack, it seems to be almost coming from within the church. Those who have distorted the gospel message and who are no longer teaching with the truth. And Paul says to Timothy, you're going to need courage and perseverance as you deal with both of those attacks. You'll need to be strong. And so right at the start of chapter 2, that's the reminder that Paul gives to Timothy. Let me read to you uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Paul says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul's calling Timothy his son here. It's familiar, isn't it? It's warm and it's affectionate. And it's not just simple stoicism either that Paul's encouraging here. Buck up, stand up tall, pull up your socks. I reckon I say that a lot to my kids. But this is not an encouragement here that we read that's about stoicism, is it? It's a call rather to rely on the strength and the grace of Jesus. And this strength is given so that Timothy can pass on what he knows to others. You might have heard this passage taught in terms of passing on a baton like a relay runner. It's not a bad example or illustration of what's happening here, but I think Paul has a less linear view of the way in which the gospel should be passed on than simply the passing on of a baton. See, I think he wants the gospel to be passed on in a kind of chain reaction type way where the gospel would bloom as Paul passes it to Timothy, he passes it to more and more people, and the gospel grows and heads out into the world. I think this is a great chapter for us as a church, for us to spend some time on as we think about how we may pass on the gospel, how we may pass on the gift that's been entrusted to us. But these are also great words for us today if you're here because you're just wanting to get to know Jesus a little more. Because in this chapter, you'll see the way in which the message of Jesus has been transmitted throughout the years. Have you ever wondered, has the message of Jesus become distorted or changed throughout the last 2,000 years? Or here in this chapter, we see Paul, the author, providing great encouragement to Timothy to not let the gospel message drift. So if you're someone here today and you're wanting just to get to know Jesus, I hope today you leave confident that the message of Christianity, the gospel, is the same message that Jesus himself spoke and lived. I want to show you how that all works. The first six verses of this chapter, there are three metaphors. We've seen them a few times this morning. The soldier, the athlete and the farmer. And they each contribute to our understanding of what is required in the task of passing on the gospel. Let's read those verses together. They start in verse 3. 
says this, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So can you see here that for Paul, a necessary corollary of proclaiming the gospel is that we'll suffer as a soldier. It's a costly task, passing on the gospel. And just like a soldier passing on the, a soldier doing their work, passing on the gospel is a dangerous task, especially if your government is hostile. And say only a foolish person would join the army because they like the look of the uniform. Being a soldier is about so much more than just being able to wear a fancy uniform. It's about sacrifice and bravery and a willingness to put yourself in harm's way. And in that sort of environment, soldiers need a wholehearted obedience to their commanding officer, don't they? See, in a similar way, Timothy will need to give his allegiance to Jesus and not to Caesar. The person fighting for their life in battle, they have no time to worry about the mundane. I'm sure that there's no soldier fighting on the battle line who in a moment of doubt wonders if they remember to put their bins out in the week. See, as we go about entrusting the good news of the gospel to others, we're going to need bravery as we do that, and we're going to need dedication to that task. Because it's not an easy task, and it's not a particularly safe task either. Perhaps the proclamation of the gospel in our lives will damage established friendships. Perhaps it'll cost us at work maybe even a promotion. It's costly for us. And just as that begins to feel overwhelming, let me remind you that the strength is given by God. That's what the passage says here. Grace comes from God. We've already thought a little bit about our second metaphor, the idea of an athlete cheating. I think we understand this metaphor really well as Australians, fascinated by our sport. But I wonder what you think it might look like for us or for the church to cheat on the mission that we have. Perhaps, just perhaps, perhaps it might involve speaking only or predominantly about the palatable parts of the gospel, speaking of the reward and the crown that are associated with the gospel, while at the same time discounting the cost. So we might speak of the blessings that the gospel brings without ever speaking about repentance. We might speak about freedom without speaking about accountability. Paul cautions Timothy to compete according to the rules. Or perhaps we might think about it in this way. If we're to present the gospel but then live a life that's not shaped by the words that we speak, it'll be seen as hypocritical. We can't speak of a gospel of love and of caring for the poor, and then when no one's looking, cheat on our taxes. We can't speak of the love of God and his giving up his son for our sake to our work colleagues, and then go home and yell at the kids. That's hypocritical. Cheating. 
to pass on the gospel. We need to live it out. We need to hold firm to it, all of it. It's hard work, but done in the grace given by God. In the third example, Paul speaks of a farmer. A hard-working farmer is the first to receive a share of the crops. It says, I think if we're really to understand what that metaphor means, we need to kind of flip it into the negative. And Mike did that in the kids' talk as well. Essentially, a slack or a lazy farmer will never have anything to eat. A lazy farmer won't reap a harvest. It's only a hard-working farmer that's ever successful in their job of farming things. You probably know that from experience. Farmers that I've met are, by and large, hard-working. Years outside, they kind of look like they've been cauterized to the hardness of work, don't they? Something that we who live in the city don't really understand. So I think farming and hard work go hand in hand. If you don't plough the ground, you won't be able to plant the seed. If you don't water it, the seeds don't grow and you'll never yield any fruit. I hope you can see in these three metaphors then that Paul uses the need to entrust the gospel to reliable witnesses. I hope you can see in these three metaphors a shape that we have towards how we go about doing mission as a church. It might be dangerous. It might be costly. It'll be hard work. And yet we're not to cheat in that task. If you've been trying really hard to tell your friends and your family about Jesus. I hope as well that these three metaphors are an encouragement to you. If you've been finding it tough telling people about who Jesus is, can you see you're not alone in this task? Helping others come to know Jesus is a hard task. If you've been diligent in that task, let me say a big thank you to you and let me encourage you to keep going whether it's raising your kids to know Jesus or whether it's telling your workmates about Jesus or helping the friends who you play sport with to get to know him better, keep going. It's hard work. I know that. The Bible tells us that. But keep going because it's worth it. It's worth passing on the gospel. It's worth the effort. And Paul moves on from his three metaphors to speak of the worthwhileness of doing this in verses 8 to 10. He moves on from three metaphors to three examples. The example of Jesus, the example of himself, Paul, and finally the example of the church. Let me read to you these verses starting at verse 8. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. These are pretty rich verses, aren't they? They shed light on what Paul thinks the gospel actually is. Can you see there in the text, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ was born into the world as a man. We know that because he descended from David. And yet, as a man, he conquered death. He was raised to life. David, of course, was Israel's great king, the man who had a heart after God's own heart. He is the one who God promised that from his offspring would come a king whose throne would endure forever and ever. Jesus is the one who defeated death. 
Only a king who's defeated death can have a throne that endures forever and ever. And so here we see Jesus, the one who defeated death, the one who descended from David, God's great king, the king who endures. And yet, at the same time, Jesus was also the suffering servant. To be what he is, God's great king, he needed to be mocked and he needed to be insulted and ultimately to be killed. That's suffering, isn't it? Suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. And Paul goes on to remind Timothy that he too is suffering, stuck as it were, in jail, wrapped in chains, but it's worth it, he says, because this is the message of life, the message of salvation, the message of eternal glory. And so, Timothy says, pass on that message. Pass it on. Now, I'll just take a few minutes with you to think about this idea, this model that Paul uses of passing on the message. See, Paul has mentored or discipled Timothy. I think it's so very important for us to think through this today. I'm the beneficiary of a relationship just like Timothy had with Paul. You might also be. I've told you about Warwick before. Uh, In one of my sermons, I told you that Warwick was the bus driver who drove the bus from Sydney to Adelaide almost non-stop as I sat next to a girl called Meredith, who I didn't know, listening to Warwick play sermons on the topic of love, sex and marriage, a 19-year-old shy boy sitting next to Meredith for two days listening to this topic. But Warwick was also a man who played a strong role in passing on the gospel of Jesus to me. Warwick was a mentor to me and to countless others, some of you probably sitting in this room. And over the course of my time at university, I reckon I must have walked with Warwick about 50 times around the Torrens Lake as he spoke gently and carefully into my life, speaking the truth of the gospel. And at the same time, incorporating me into his world, into what it meant for him to be a father and a husband and a teacher of Jesus. Some of you also may have benefited from walks with Warwick. He was a prolific mentor. He had a few rough edges, granted. He offended a few people. He was confronting to others. But to me, he was a mentor. And as I think back over my time with Warwick, a great source of joy, for he entrusted the gospel to me. He wasn't the only one doing that, of course. But he was a big part in me doing what I do today. I wonder for you, have there been similar people like that in your life? who have entrusted the gospel to you. Or I wonder if you today are investing and mentoring and entrusting the gospel to others in your life. Perhaps today you're a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt. If you are, then you already have kind of built into that relationship a wonderful opportunity, probably even better put, a responsibility to mentor and disciple and to entrust the good news of the gospel. Perhaps you've been wondering for a while if there is someone who you should be entrusting the gospel to. Let me encourage you to pray that God will put a person in your life who you can mentor. Of course, today you may be more like Timothy. You may be craving to receive mentorship from someone like Paul. 
You may be looking for someone who can help guide you in the gospel and teach you the truths of Scripture. If that's you, let me say two things very quickly. Make sure you're in a community group. Community groups are groups that meet weekly and they are kind of our primary mechanism for doing just that sort of thing in our church. If you're not in a community group and you would like to be in one, please um, grab your leaflet that you got on your way in and fill out the response slip and ask to be in one. Community groups are a great way to be mentored and encouraged. Secondly, if you're not in a community group but you still want to be mentored and for one reason or another you don't think a community group is the right thing, don't let that hold you up. Please pop your name on one of those response slips and just jot that you want to have a chat with me and put it in the everything box afterwards. Because we have a number of people here at Unley who I think are really well equipped to be able to mentor others to get to know Jesus better. I'd love you to do that today. Why do we need mentors? Well, essentially, because nothing that's worthwhile in this life is ever easy. And that's especially true when it comes to living out the gospel and passing it on to others. That's the message of 2 Timothy, isn't it? Passing on the gospel is not easy, but it's important. That's the case with many things in life. Over the last couple of months, as I mentioned, I've been trying to go to the gym. I know it's a worthwhile thing to do because the Australian Department of Health and Ageing tells me it is. They say that I need to be active every day if I can. They say that I should do at least 30 minutes of moderate, intense activity at least once a week or preferably every day. And they say that if I can, I should enjoy, kind of underline that word, I should enjoy doing some regular vigorous activity for health and fitness purposes. It's hard work exercising if you've ever tried doing it. But it comes with benefits. It's worth doing. And if you've ever tried to exercise, you might realise that it's sometimes a little bit easier to do it with someone. I've found going to the gym with Michael a great motivator for doing it. That's why Paul works with Timothy, I think. And why he works with Titus and Mark and why he's calling for others to come and see him, to share the load and to be an encouragement for him. Paul's message to us as a church is that passing on the gospel is worth it because it's a matter of life and death. It's the message of life and immortality. It's the message of salvation. Rosie Ruse, to this day, claims that she ran, ran the Boston Marathon from start to finish. Seems that she's deluded. She's deluded because she really wants to have that laurel leaf crown that's only given to the victor of the race. The truth is that she will only get it if she competes according to the rules. The Bible teaches that we too have a prize that is worth competing for, the prize of life and immortality, the prize of resurrection and glory, of being co-heirs with Jesus. That's something that I want to tell others about, that's something that I want to invite others to join us in. But past experience tells me that it's going to be hard work doing that. The message will be rejected time and time again. But our role as a church is to entrust that message to others and to do so in the grace and the strength that's given by God. I'm going to pray for us that we might do that well as a church and that in the face of suffering as we do that, we would be strong in the grace that is given in Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this letter to Timothy that 
your servant Paul wrote, that helps us see so clearly what our mission as a church is, and that at the same time shows us how real that mission is, and how difficult it is. Father, I want to thank you for those of us who are suffering for the purpose of entrusting the gospel to others at the moment. Please lighten their load. Please also go before us as we speak to others, soften their hearts. Father, we ask that you would do your work of saving, that you would do your work of removing scales from eyes. Father, we ask that you would fortify us with the strength that we need as we raise children and nieces and nephews and friends, as we mentor others, as we seek to live a life that brings you glory and honour. Amen.